Good morning. Everybody all right? Good, good, good. Time of worship, time to connect with God. Now we're going to kind of hear a little bit of his word. So why don't you take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door when you came in. Um, and I'm going to organize my notes, which are clearly not in order, apparently. So I'm now looking at this going, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. All right, good enough. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank real quick. And just by saying a few words, because we're going to need all the time that we have together to uh, go through some of the passages. The scriptures are going to be on the screens because we're going to be combining Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, we are in part 54 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, The Finger of God. And you're going to understand that uh, much more deeply as we go through what that title means. Uh, let me just say one disclaimer as we begin. Uh, we have a subject matter today that can be very sensitive for some folks. And so I realize that we have some young people with us, so I'm going to keep it as PG-13 as I can, don't, don't, not do a lot of hype. It's going to be a little bit more academic for that reason, because I'm not interested in causing any extra concerns for no reason. But we're going to be dealing with the issue of the demonic. And so for a lot of people, engaging with that ends up creating some unnecessary fear or worry. And so I'm going to try to make sure that we're just dealing with the facts. And so it's a little bit more teachy than preachy, if that makes any sense, uh, as we kind of go through some of the information before us. So let me just begin with this idea. I consistently teach in this church the concept of integrity. And when I mean integrity around here, as much as I think it's great to talk about doing good things and right things and being moral, that's actually not what I'm addressing when I address the issue of integrity. Uh, what I mean by integrity is soundness, consistency throughout. And, and always the analogy that comes immediately to mind that I share with you to try to implant in your mind is that of a dam, right? So a dam has to be solid and consistent throughout the entire structure. The water is pushing on it in every area. So if there is a weak spot... The water will break out there. The minute it begins to break out there, it only gets worse because then the pressure shifts all into that area. So as believers, as Christians, as men and women of God, we are called to be consistent with our faith throughout. But what would the enemy naturally do? Wouldn't you go to the weak spots? Wouldn't you go to the one area that... Because you could say, you know what? 75% of the dam in my life against selfishness or against self or against sin or whatever, 75% is absolutely solid. There's this 25% kind of spread all over the place that may be weak spots and we feel really good about it. Because we're like, man, at least it's majority God stuff. Well, if you're the enemy, you're not going to focus on that 75%. You're going to focus on the 25% and try to take the person out. What is the problem with that? The problem is to fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. A house divided can't stand. A house divided can't stand. What I've found in my life is there is double-mindedness. As much as I would like to always be consistently about Jesus, and as much as I would always like to run to him for everything, I simply do not. And that is embarrassing. Um, give me an analogy maybe that you can relate to. Let's say someone insults you. Someone demeans you, speaks down to you. And you're very offended by this. What you should do is then take that like Moses did and take it immediately to God and say, God, the people that are around me 
are really all over my case. I'm nobody. Can you take care of the situation? How many of us do that? Okay, no, we don't. We run to the altar of self-pity. We run to the altar of me and we sit there and go, how dare they talk down to me? How dare they offend me? How dare they believe that about me? How dare they treat me like that? And we will soak in at that altar when we should be over with God. You understand how that is a lack of integrity. We take a lot to God, but we take some to other altars. That seems to be the problem. So we're going to talk about the time when Jesus brought up this famous line, a house divided can't stand. What does it mean? And in talking about that, we're going to find out a lot about the demonic. All right, so let's go ahead and dive right into it. Uh, We are going to begin with the scriptures right here on the screens. And just know this, we have already talked in part 36 of this series about the issue of Jesus healing a mute and deaf demon or demon-possessed man and why that was such a big deal. So I'm only going to recap it real quick. If you want to know more details, you can slide back to that portion of the series. It begins like this. Then a demon-oppressed man, pause, is there a difference between possession and oppression? Well, yes, there is in our vernacular. There is in our language. But I don't believe that that is splitting hairs here. The way that we normally look at it is we say possession is internal. Oppression is from the outside. That's normally what we mean. However, it's using the phrase interchangeably here because you're going to find out this guy was possessed from the inside. But the phrase oppression is used here because it's trying to tie into the motif of enslavement. All right. And what what do we call people that are enslaved? We call them oppressed people. So that's why this phrase is used. But make no mistake, the man is possessed. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute, he could not see, could not speak, was brought to him, brought to Jesus. Who brought this guy? Well, we don't know. Usually we assume it was family members and maybe it was. But because of the controversy that's going to arise, I wonder whether or not this was another setup. I wonder whether or not the religious leaders actually brought this guy just to cause a problem. Because they knew that everything was going to come to a head right here. Now, if they did that, it all backfired. It may well be that they were simply in the room, the religious leaders. All right, so it says, and Jesus healed him. Now, that's unusual because normally when you deal with demons, you talk about casting out. You don't talk about healing. Healing is for physical malady. But don't we have this guy have both? He has a physical malady, which is a manifestation of the demon possession. Yeah. All right, so he healed him, and then the next line you'll notice from the other gospel says, casting out a demon that was mute. The demon was mute? That's weird. Like the demon can't talk? No, it's that the demon's manifestation of being inside was that he had bound the man's tongue, so you then associate it back with him, the demon, going, hey, what did that demon do? He caused muteness. All right, so we're going to call him a mute demon. It's not that the demon can't talk, all right? Then it says, when the demon had gone out, which meant it used to be in, okay, we all clear, that's why it's a possession. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and marveled. In Greek, that phrase means they were out of their mind. And they said, 
Can this be the son of David? All right. Why is this healing a big deal? Uh, As I said, we've already talked about it, so let me briefly recap. This is a big deal because of superstition. The Jews had bought into an awful lot of superstition because of the gods that were worshipped around them, or the idols. No, there was only one true God, but wow, we sure empower a lot of garbage stuff to be a God to us, right? So they had bought into a lot of superstition, and one of the superstitions that they bought into was that the only way to cast out a demon was if the person confessed that they wanted to be free. Well, what happens if you can't talk? Oh, this one's impossible, can't get him out, right? This one's an extra sticky kind, he's got to stay there for life. The other thing is they said, well, if he's deaf, he can't hear the incantations. He cannot hear the rebukes. He cannot hear. So the demon won't go out because the demon can't hear either. Okay, all this is silly. So Jesus walked in and said, uh, that's bogus. Get out. And he heals the guy. And everyone went, whoa, right? Last time he did it, they said, this has never been seen before in Israel because their methods were totally different. And they had to go through all these little magic formulas to try to get demons out. Jesus walks in with authority and just kicks it out. And they're like, whoa, I don't know who this guy is, but this is a whole different ballgame. But then they said the magic words that triggered the religious leaders to get super upset. What were those words? Can this be the son of David? Well, every religious, religious leader knew that's a messianic line. And they're going, hold up. These people are believing this guy's the Messiah? Now, if he is, we better get on board. We got to go check this guy out. But if he's not, we better kill this guy and get rid of him fast because everyone's going to start following him. So when people, they notice the crowd is already moving his direction, they're going to get really upset. And this is where the controversy starts. But when the Pharisees and the scribes who came down in elevation from the holy city and capital of Jerusalem... When they heard it, they heard of the miracle and they heard of the son of David name. They said, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. What's a Beelzebul? It's Satan. We could go on and on about where the name came from, but it's totally boring. and We're not going to talk about that. So we're moving on. It's Satan. And they said he only casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While other people were hassling Jesus to test him, keeping, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They're saying, if you're really that guy, you got to do some tricks. You got to perform for me. You got to give me proof. You got to do this. You got to do that or else I won't believe in you. Jesus was getting hassled a lot. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts and intentions, called them to himself. And he said to them in parables, which are analogies and metaphors. How can Satan cast out Satan? Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. In other words, if we have this much instability, we are now seeing the end of Satan's regime is that what you're trying to say to me clearly not so let me point out the stupidity of your argument how can satan cast out satan doesn't that kind of wreck his plan so jesus was just kind of pointing out the absurdity 
right? So he's saying your argument is, is fallible. It's, it doesn't make any sense. But it brings up a couple issues for us. The first one is this. This is a very serious charge to call Jesus in cahoots with Satan. This is the third time they've done that. You do not call the Son of God possessed. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's just that's called a no-no, right? You do not call Jesus Christ demonic. Here's the reason why it's so serious. Number one, in this scenario, and they know full well what they're doing, to charge him with sorcery, which is ultimately what they're doing, that he's in league with the black arts, that he's dealing with the demonic, to charge him with sorcery, according to the Jewish teachings in the Mishnah, is a capital offense. So they could maneuver this to get him killed for doing sorcery. And they know that. That's why it's one reason it's serious. The other reason it's serious is because when you drop the demonic bomb on any teacher, you scare the living daylights out of everybody that is listening to them. Right? So, I mean, that's the way the enemy can always cause division. All he has to do is just go, ah, whoa, 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 maybe that's demonic and blah, blah, blah. And everyone freaks out and runs away. So if you start calling Jesus demonic, you're trying to scare his followers because they're like, wait, 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 what do you mean? You think he's demonic? He's not demonic, is he? Because now if I'm following a demonic guy, that's really messed up. And then people just go, listen, just to be clear, I'm just going to bail out. Well, then Satan wins. That's a bummer. And the third reason why this is a big deal is because it's blasphemy against the son of God. You're saying something about God that is not true. And you're linking him with the devil now unfortunately this argument stuck uh in jewish writings after jesus was gone they refer to him as the guy who used black magic to lead israel astray which is such a bummer because that's obviously not at all what he did so what does satan really do and what is he kind of all about what is his actual power all right so let me let me use an analogy here uh, and you can kind of picture it's a God Satan thing, but just to be fun, let's go ahead and use some different names. I get to be God in this situation because I have the microphone. And so, so I get to be the little God character. Let's pick somebody else. And we know that Satan's real name is Stan. Yes, we all know that. Okay. And as you know, every time I try to type Satan, I accidentally type Stan and that's God's way of conveying to me his real name. All right. So his real name, his real name is Stan. So let's say that I come to you and Stan and I are both uh, up here as leaders and I'm actually bigger and badder and faster and smarter and everything else than Stan. And I'm clearly the, the better guy. And yet I seem to be in war with Stan. And we we're going, wait, 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 why is this even a war? Because you're so much better than he is. Why do you even call this a war? Because aren't we bringing up the issue that... God and Satan are not equal superpowers. Are we all clear on that? It, it, God is infinitely greater than Satan. There was a time when Satan was not, but God always has been. God is the uncaused cause, the prime mover, the creator. He is the high and lifted up one. He's the almighty. So as big and bad as Satan is to us, Meaning he's the pinnacle of God's creation. He was beautiful and majestic. He's super strong and mighty and smarter than all of us. Even though that's the truth, God is so transcendent beyond him, it's not even close. He is just as tra more transcendent above Satan than he is above us. And we're not all that impressed with us. 
So in other words, it's not an equal superpower. So why are we keep calling it a war? It's not really a war if it's super lopsided. If I'm the super strong guy and Stan's the little wimpy guy, then, then why are we calling it a war? If all of a sudden Hawaii decided to launch an attack on the mainland America, would we be worried? No, what are you going to do? Kill me with your lay? What are you going to, you know, oh, you're going to ukulele me to death. Oh, dear, right? And so we're not, we're not worried about it. I mean, come on, really? Hawaii against the mainland United States. That's ridiculous, by the way. I only demean them because I'm jealous of them. So anyway, <laughs> right? Because I don't live there. So we wouldn't take it seriously. We wouldn't call it a war. We would call it like an accident <laughs> or we'd call it a skirmish. We certainly wouldn't call it a war. So why, if they're not equal powers, do we keep referring in scripture to it as a war between God and Satan? For this very reason, what if what Stan and I are trying to do is win your hearts? That's a whole different ballgame. Doesn't matter how strong I am, right? Because if you believe his lies, if you buy into him, if you give him your allegiance, he doesn't need strength. He doesn't need might. He doesn't need power because he has your heart. So the reason why it's a war is because it's for people. And it doesn't matter how high and lifted up God is, if we attribute our allegiance to Satan, he wins. If we give him authority in our minds, if we give him power in our hearts, if we keep bowing our knee to him, then it doesn't matter how great and mighty God is because we're empowering the other guy. That's why it's a war. What kingdom does Satan really have? In, in practicality, because it is significant, but why? We do believe that scripture teaches us that at one point he was up in heaven hanging out with God. At some point he thought he could take the throne, didn't work out so well. Big fight, he gets cast out. Where does he get cast to? Here, right? Fresno. No, he doesn't, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding, totally kidding. I'm just, I'm sure I'm jealous about something there too. All right, let me move up. Jesus, is, uh, Jesus casts out Satan, he lives down here, and he now is the God of this world. That's how he's described. He is called the ruler of this world by scripture. All right, John 14. And it says that Jesus shows up to destroy the works of the devil in First John, John. So all of a sudden we see them go head to head in the desert temptation. Y'all remember this story, right? In the desert temptation, one of the temptations, Satan says... I show you all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. I'll give them all to you if you bow down and worship me. Now, that's not a real temptation if he doesn't have the deed to all the kingdoms of the world. Yes. So we see an obvious thing that he is indeed the ruler of earth. And so he said, hey, I'll give that to you. And Jesus said, that's not going to happen, right? Then all of a sudden, Jesus starts using phrases when he's referring to the cross where he said, you guys, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Then he says, the ruler of this world will be judged. And he's referring to the cross. So what happened at the cross? The cross not only changed everything physically, but it changed everything supernaturally. The cross, according to Colossians 2, not only took the code of our sins that stood against us and nailed it there. So now Satan no longer had anything on us, right? Because that, that was his big move. That was his, 
his authority, that was his power over us, was going, man, I can condemn you. Jesus said, uh, no, you can't, because I paid for that. Takes it away from you, now Satan has nothing on you. Not only did he nail that to the cross, but it says, quote, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What that means is God landed a decisive blow and took out all nuclear capability of Satan. Satan then is in scramble mode to hang on to whatever he has because God's kingdom started pressing in. God began to set up pockets all over the place in lives, which all of a sudden Satan used to run the world. But now you all of a sudden have the kingdom of God erupting in the power of the Holy Spirit through all these people where you have a little Christian who suddenly comes alive in Jesus is completely redeemed and made whole and healthy and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now all of a sudden that territory Satan doesn't have access to. All of a sudden, there's another one. That one shows up. And then they all start gathering together. And then it starts spreading like wildfire throughout the world. And now Satan is now pushed back on his heels to hang on to his territory. It talks about strongholds of Satan. It talks about the gates of hell will not prevail. It starts talking about these things because God is pressing in his kingdom. And he's wrecking a bunch of stuff that Satan is doing. Then the Bible starts referring to Satan as the... One who blinds the mind of unbelievers. Now all of a sudden you realize he's no longer the ruler of the entire world. He's only the ruler over those who will give him a throne. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is he powerful and does he have influence? Yes. We know that the majority of the world would rather track with him than they would with God. Is that significant? Yes. Does that scare God? Absolutely not. God knows what he's doing and he's pressing in. So last quick, last quick question. It said, they said that he casts out demons by demons. Is that possible? Um, if you ask any of the pagan religions, Wicca, which is witchcraft, Satanism, stuff like that, they would say absolutely because they would do incantations where they would invite a stronger demon to cast out a, a, a lower demon because let's say, for example, they feel hassled by one, they would invoke a stronger one to remove that one so then they could be at peace. Yes. And that was air quotes in case you're listening on the radio. Now, does that really work? Well, I don't know. I think I'm going to go with God on this one about I don't trust the father of lies. So I don't trust anything that pagans believe. I don't trust anything that Satanists believe because they're all being led by someone who is not forthcoming. Does that make sense? So therefore, I'm going to say, no, 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 I don't think it works. You go, well, it does practically. I mean, they're doing this all the time. Okay, here's what I think is really going on. I think we're switching deck chairs. Because here's the deal. If Satan brings in a higher demon to replace the lower demon, didn't he just gain? Wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't you take that deal every day of the week? If they're going to try to invoke a stronger demon to that person, wouldn't you go, yay, our team? So of course it works, but that's not doing any decisive blow against the kingdom of Satan. It's actually strengthening the kingdom of Satan. So yes, of course it looks like it works. But when Jesus does it, it's actually a blow against their kingdom. Demons are scared of Jesus because they know who he is. 
That's why in all the New Testament, you watch them react to Jesus and they are absolutely scared out of their minds. They're up against the King of King and Lord of Lords, the commander of God's army, and he is frightening to them. So the only thing they can do is get whatever we give them. And unfortunately, we give them a lot of space. Let's go back to the passage. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, uh, by whom do your disciples, Mr. Pharisees, cast them out? What power are they using? You're saying I'm bogus, but we're kind of doing the same thing. Therefore, they'll be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God, by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh Uh-oh. That's called a warning. That's called a, the king is here and you're not recognizing him because he's incognito. All right. Has anybody here seen the animated movie, The Crudes? Anybody raise your hand if you've seen that. All right. 13 of you. Okay. Now, in that movie, it really has no bearing. There's a little guy and he's super cute and he goes, dun, 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 to make a dramatic sound. So here's in essence what you just saw. Jesus comes into the place and he says, hold up. Y'all think that I'm casting out demons by demons, which is a completely bogus example and a bogus idea. Actually, I'm the God of the universe. Therefore, when I walk in, I walk in with authority. I do not reach out to any other authority. I myself cast out demons. And if I'm walking in as the son of God and you are attacking me as being demon possessed, how much danger are you in because I am God. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's it. Give me an idea on Jewish exorcist techniques. They were bizarre. Um, for whatever reason, and I believe it's the, the sheer mercy of God, this stuff worked. Now, not always in the way that it's said, because the way that it's written down is so superstitious, you go, that's absolutely bogus. Let me give you an idea. We don't know how they all did it, but there's a couple ones that are written down. One is in the book of Tobit, which is an apocryphal book. The other one is by Josephus, a Jewish historian. He records, both those guys record how Jews were doing exorcisms. And this is how bizarre it was. One of them was, go find the magic root in the ground. And the root is like lightning. It flashes around. It's hard to get a hold of. And sometimes you can't even get it out of the ground. But what you can do is tie a dog to it, and the dog will pull it out of the ground. Of course, the dog will immediately die. Then you grab the root, make sure to hold it down and don't let it touch you. And then you carry it in, and you can go lay it on somebody, and that will cast the demon out. What in the world? Does that sound right? Uh, no, that's weird. In Tobit, it says you need to burn a fish's liver and heart and the smell will chase out the demons. Okay. So you got to understand. I mean, I've, I've seen some bad cooking, but (laughs) I don't think it's going to chase a demon out. Right. What are they doing? They're using all kinds of magic and incantation and formulas and all this stuff. But out of the mercy of God, maybe God was going, listen, you guys are all idiots. But what I'm noticing is that person is bound and I'm going to set my person free. So, hey, you can invoke my name and I will kick the demon out. But understand, you don't know what you're doing. Do you understand how different it was when Jesus came in? There was none of that. 
there was none of that flash and flare. I'm not saying it wasn't dramatic because there was times when demons went out screaming and there was all kinds of crazy. I mean, I get that. There were resistance to demons for a short time. But this is what Jesus did. He walked in. He said, I'm God. Get out. I'll wait here all day on you. Get out. I'm the authority here. You got nothing. And sure enough, they all left. That was so different than their techniques. They went, something's different about this guy. And I don't know what's happening. Here's the other couple things. He said, if it is by the finger of God that I'm casting out demons, what's he talking about? Well, remember, Jesus would always, whenever possible, quote the Old Testament because he's talking with Jews. He's referring to Exodus chapter 8 in a famous story where Moses goes up to Pharaoh and says the famous line, let my people go, right? We all know that. Andy, my daughter, refers that to my, as my God voice. Let my people go, right? I do that all the time whenever I tell her to go to bed. Andy, go to bed, right? And then she's like, oh, God has told me to go to bed. Okay. (laughs) Moses is with Pharaoh and God says, I'm going to have you do some miracles. Now, how many plagues did God rain on Egypt? Do you remember? Ten. Why did it take ten? Why not just do one decisive blow? He could have done the killing of the firstborn and just ended the whole thing, but he didn't. He could have jumped to Passover. He didn't. Why? Because of superstition. Just remember that all ten of those plagues were to knock out ten different deities that the Egyptians believed in. So, for example, he made the whole sky turn dark. Why? Because they believed in the sun god Ra, and he went, nope, bigger than him. And then they, the first one that was the Nile was turned into blood. Why? Because they worshiped the Nile. Okay, so the Nile was its own deity for them. And they thought that gives us life and it's, and God goes, no, no, you just got wrecked. Now, if you remember when Moses goes in and turns the Nile to blood, the black magic arts magicians duplicated it. Do you remember that? They actually made water turn to blood. And Pharaoh's like, forget it, man. You're pulling something over on me. If my guys can do it, it's not all that impressive. They were able to distort and twist by demonic power water to blood. And then they got to the second. Do you anybody remember what the second plague was? It was actually frogs. Why? Because they worshipped. There was a frog god. That's why. So they would call it frogs. Well, sure enough, the black magicians did the same thing they called frogs up as well so they were duplicating one to one going back and forth but what was the third plague the third plague was turning dust to gnats that is inanimate to animate that is non-life to life and that's where the magicians go we're out we don't do that that is the finger of god okay that's the phrase that is used here We are now engaging with the almighty deity. We can't duplicate that. We do not have power over life. And they stepped out and didn't try to duplicate any of the ones moving forward because they knew they were outmatched, right? All right. So that's the story here. Jesus is warning them the kingdom of God is present. All right, let's go to the next passage. He said, all right, let me give you another analogy. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house, not strong man, it's strong man we're going to call him dude because when i was growing up everyone used strong man as if it was a title it's just an analogy of saying a strong guy all right so how can someone enter a strong dude's house and steal his possessions or plunder his goods unless he first ties up the strong dude 
No one can. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him, overcomes him, takes away his defense system or his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil or distributes the loot, then indeed may he steal his stuff. What, where does this analogy come from? Jesus just making this stuff up on the fly? No, he's quoting Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 says God is talking about the Messiah and God's power. And God said, I will even rescue captives from the mighty. Meaning even if you're mighty, it doesn't matter. I'll shut you down. I will come in and wreck you and I will take back your stuff. So God was talking about his ability to redeem. Well, sure enough, we find out that in essence, what this says is very simple. Who is the strong man? It's Satan. Yeah. Satan runs a kingdom. He binds traps and slaves people versus sin, sickness, possession and death. And demons help him do that. But God has bound him, tied him up to allow his kingdom to be plundered by his soldiers. That's us. Jesus is the stronger. Now, Satan is allowed to retain whatever crowd the world, whatever crown the world is giving to him. But Jesus will also consistently invade those areas, break up the strongholds and keep him off balance. The minute Jesus is done utilizing him as option guy then Satan is done and he will cast him into the lake of fire and we're all done. What would Jesus possibly want to steal from Satan's house? What does Satan have that, that Jesus doesn't have? Right? Cause it sounds kind of silly. Why would you tie him up and plunder his goods? What do you want from Satan? What is, what does he have? That's a value us, right? I mean, he has our hearts. That's the only thing that's valuable. So he has our allegiance so what Jesus does is come in and set the captives free so they have a freedom to run to him. Now, they also have a freedom to go their own way. And then they get, become bound all over again. And we'll get into that story in a moment. Jesus goes on. He said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What does that mean? He's talking to these religious guys who are attacking him. He said, just so you know, gentlemen. Everyone picks sides with every decision they make. And this is what it is for us. Do you understand there's no neutral ground? Well, you know what? I'm not, I'm not like fully into God, but I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not into Satan either. Uh, yeah, you are. Because there is no other side. There's no fence sitting. There's no, no, you know what? I choose me. To choose yourself is to choose Satan. Do you get that? Because the number one God of America is me. It's self. Now, it used to be money, but really money just serves what? Self. And when you choose self, that's Satan's number one puppet. You're choosing. Every time you choose something other than God, you are choosing sides. Now, you may be a Christian and you may be in God's camp, but understand you are helping out the other team. Why would we do that? Well, I don't know. When Peter did that, Jesus called him what? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You have things in your heart of men, not things of God. You're on the wrong team, buddy. Knock it off. Every time we make a decision, we are picking sides. Then he says this phrase. Listen up. This is deep. 
every sin, all sins, missing the mark of God's perfection. And whatever blasphemies that people will utter, they will be forgiven the children of man. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It's a different kind. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, like Peter did, and then actually ended up running the church. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, never has forgiveness, either in this age or in the age to come, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That's pretty staggering. For they were saying, this is a context statement, for they were saying that Jesus was demon-possessed. All right. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, this has been a question that I've gotten throughout my whole ministry. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Intriguingly enough, I tend to deviate from the norm on this one. Shocker. (laughs) I'm looking at nine commentaries when I prep this message. Seven of them all said the same exact thing. Two said different. I go with the two other ones. Um, I've always been told my whole life that it's rejecting Jesus. Right? The only unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus. And in some ways, that is partially correct. In other ways, it is not. And here's why I don't like the argument. It's a logic argument. It's not a biblical argument. In other words, people go, well, let's reason this out. The only thing that couldn't be forgiven is if you reject Jesus who forgives sins. So, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has got to be rejecting Jesus. But that's not what the context says. It doesn't say because they were rejecting Jesus. It says because they were calling Jesus demon-possessed and somehow it was blaspheming the Holy Spirit or at least getting close to it. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Why is it, by the way, why is it worse than blaspheming Jesus? If, if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, why is blasphemy against the Father forgiven, blasphemy against the Son is forgiven, but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not forgiven? Why? Simple answer. Because the Holy Spirit reveals all things, and he's the end of the line. In other words, they didn't know who Jesus fully was. That's why Jesus said on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. But when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and started revealing everything, revealing who Jesus was, revealing what God does for mankind, revealing what his nature is, when the Holy Spirit reveals all that and you reject it, there's nowhere else to go. Yeah? That's why it's a bigger deal. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Here's what I believe it is. A persistent, willful decision after clearly seeing God's work and yet rejecting God knowingly. It's a whole behavior. It's not an isolated incident. It's not a phase. It's a commitment to shut down God's work and attribute it to Satan, which is choosing sides. You have to clearly know the source and reject that source on purpose. The Pharisees knew it was Jesus doing it. They knew it was the power of God, but they hated him so much. They rejected God, rejected Jesus, attributed it all to Satan. And that's why it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So can it happen today? Yes, I believe that it can. However, I believe it is very rare and unlikely because of the whole heart that it requires to do so it is not a phase of you know i was a christian and then i ran away for like five six years and i was like god i don't want you and i want nothing to do with you and leave me alone i'm not your child and i completely shoved god out of my life no that's called being human that's called being an immature brat that's actually what that is that is not blasphemy of the holy spirit it can happen but i'll tell you this there's no way it can happen to a christian 
because it violates the entire being of who the Holy Spirit is in you. There's no way to do that because it is a constant, willful, patterned behavior of saying, I'm choosing sides very willingly and knowingly to shut out, and not just shut out, but to wreck God's work here by calling it the enemies. You understand how severe that is? I mean, there's so many things that have to get mixed up in that. And Jesus is like, watch it, gentlemen. You're way over here. You're on the line. You know who I am. You don't like me. You don't want me to be who I say I am. However, you know full well that God is moving through me. But because of your hatred for me, you are calling me demonic. Oh, that's a whole different ballgame. Remember, it is not just words. It's the heart intent that's behind it. How do we know that? Well, because of a passage, let's jump to Luke. And we're going to have it on the screen. Luke eleven twenty four. How does this whole demon possession thing work? Well, kind of like this. It says, when the unclean spirit, the demon, has been cast out of a person in a legit exorcism, it passes through waterless places or dry, arid places, seeking rest or a home. And finding none to inhabit, it says to itself, I will return to my house from which I was cast out. All right. Isn't it not? I know you guys didn't know you're getting exorcism lessons today. However, it's nice to know this information is in scripture. What does it mean? What are these waterless places? So a demon gets cast out and it starts going around through dry, arid places. In the Jewish motif, it's desert. That's why Jesus went into the desert to be tempted. Yeah. But is it really that demons are like, I got to go to the Mojave Desert. I got to go to Death Valley. I got. Okay. No, it's not like he's running going, man, it's so cold out here. I got to go somewhere hot. That's not it at all. What it means is, in my opinion, is it seeks satisfaction, but it only has thirst, meaning it is dry, weary, and it's going, no, 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 I'm going back to where I was fed and back where I was watered. So I got to go to a place where I can get some some, uh, pleasure in what I'm doing. All right? So that that begs the question, why do demons want to host? Why not just be demons, Right? I mean, you got to think about it from their perspective. Why not just hover around and be a demon and you're not stuck in some moron somewhere hanging out where you're just like, why are we watching TV again? Right? It's like, I'm a demon. I want to do something cool. Right? You know, why not just go around, freak people out and do that kind of thing? Because here's the problem with it. Even if you're in the middle of the night, you knock someone's book off their shelf and everyone's like, ah, that still doesn't help your team. Oh, I mean, yeah, you freak people out, but that doesn't really help anybody. Why do you want to host? Because that's the only place you can wreck God's stuff. All mankind is made in the image of who? God. What does Satan really want to do? Because he knows where he's going. He wants to wreck God's stuff. So his whole point is I would have much more effectiveness for my kingdom if I can distort the image of God in you. So they have much more benefit by inhabiting someone. That's why they don't want to just hang out and float around. Does that make sense? All right, then it says, so let's say it gets cast out and it starts coming back. And when it comes back, determined to re-inhabit the person that it left, it finds the house, which is the life and body of the person, swept and put in order, but not inhabited. Uh Uh-oh, it's open territory. Then it goes to get others and bring seven, that's a number of fullness, seven other spirits more evil than itself. Is there like a hierarchy of evil? 
right? That's kind of weird. Grabs seven more spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and possess and dwell there to live permanently. And the last state of that person after an eight demon possession is worse than the first. We're going backwards. This brings up some questions. Exorcisms without Jesus happen. Once again, I call it the mercy of God, but it's just not wisdom. When you cast out a demon from someone, it is now open land. If the Holy Spirit or Jesus doesn't infill that land, it's still open land. So just because it went away, it will boomerang back around and go, I liked it there. I don't want to go anywhere. And it will try to come back to that home. (laughs) Why get more to come with you? Because you got cast out last time, so why not get reinforcements? You understand what I'm saying? So, hey, you can cast out three of us. Now there's, there's what, more of us here. And, you know, that's where Legion got involved. Remember, if you understand the demoniac from the Gerasene region, he said, we are Legion. Uh, that's the idea. Is there, that was backup. Another interesting thing. Do you remember Mary Magdalene's description? Mary Magdalene, who Jesus saw first after his resurrection, who was super important to him. Do you remember what her description is in Luke? And out of Mary Magdalene was cast, what, seven demons. Why? Is it possible that she was demon-possessed at one point, got freed, and invited them back in and allowed them back in, and she was worse off when she began, yet Jesus still cast out the fullness of spirits from her? Understand the power of Jesus. When he was done with Mary Magdalene, not only was she clean and perfect and whole and beautiful, she was used in his ministry. So don't tell me that someone that is messed up by the demonic can never be healed, can never be whole, can never be free. Mary Magdalene is a big deal in the eyes of Jesus. She was in his ministry, and it was because when Jesus set someone free, you are free indeed. Amen? Amen. And so the issue is you're worse off at the end. So this is the reason why they would say, well, Pastor Lance, I think my friend is demon possessed. Will you meet with them and will you do something about it? And I said, well, do they want to be free? There's no way I'm casting out a demon of somebody that doesn't want it gone. Why? Because I'm only going to cause everything to be worse because all I'm going to do is open up the property and then there's no, I don't want Jesus. I just want to be free of my problems. Well, now you're still open range. So no, I'm not going to do that. The only time I would ever pray for someone to be freed of a demon that doesn't want it is someone that I feel that is so enslaved, they're not even thinking straight. They're so bound and so lied to and so messed up, they don't even know what they want. Then I'll do defense to go in and bring in the power of God to say, we need this person to have an option to even choose Jesus because they're so upside down. But once again, that's a risk, yes? Because there's no guarantee that even after they're free that they want Jesus. And if you don't want Jesus, oh man, that's not good. Because it's just going to get worse. Jesus is going to rebuke these religious leaders who are saying, really, you think I'm doing all this? You think I'm demonic? Let me explain something to you, gentlemen. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit guys the whole reason why you're saying these things is you are screwed up in your heart you are so off base you're wrecking everybody you bunch of snakes that's the next line you brood of vipers how can you speak good when you're evil your hearts are wrecking your theology you are no benefit to anybody else for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks 
The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, Jesus said, when I come back and you stand before me, people will give an account for every careless, idle word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Because your words betray your heart. If you want to know what your heart is really like, what do you say when you're caught off guard? You know what I'm talking about? Because we edit all of our speech, especially if we're around other Christians, right? We guard how we react. We guard what we say. But when you're caught off guard, that's the intent of your heart. Jesus is bringing these guys and saying, I don't think you understand how serious this condition is. I don't think you understand when you're blasting me and calling me demonic. When you are all against me, when you are fighting me and I am the son of God, don't you understand what you are wrecking here? No, we don't do that. The king is among you and he deserves respect. Therefore, if you knew anything of what you were doing, you would bow your knee right now to me. But the fact that you're fighting me shows me that you are wicked and you are your father, the devil. If you were not, you would be praising me now. So Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, right? And he's going, listen, we're not playing this game anymore. I am trying to win your hearts and I've allowed Satan to be option guy. And he's leading a lot of you astray. There's times when I'm going to step in, but even if I step in, you better want me and not just want you because the choice for you is a choice for him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for setting us free. Lord, this room is full of people that have been rescued by you and we are impressed by your power. We are in awe of your glory. Lord God, we are nervous about the demonic because they're bigger than us but then we remember that you're our bodyguard you're our dad you're our king you're our protector you're our defender you are our fortress and therefore we have peace we know that father that you are in control of all things and that you are sovereign and nothing happens outside of your will therefore lord we take comfort knowing that you are with us be glorified in our lives we want to choose you in jesus name amen have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time. That's it. And the earlier you figure that out, the better we're going to be. So the big question is, is Jesus our king, and are we on his side? Ah, it's the biggest deal of all, yeah? Let's stop right there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for setting us free. Lord, this whole room... Is just jammed with people that know you. That God, that you have set them free. Lord, we're not perfect. We are so messed up and I'm still double-minded. And, and Lord, I speak for my, a lot of my friends here saying, God, we run to a bunch of other stuff besides you. It's embarrassing and we are unstable. And our kingdom is not as sound as it should be. Because we keep mixing things up. God, would you purify us? Would you lead us towards repentance? Would you show us a better way and better bread? Would you lead us into your truth? And Father, that what you set us free for, would you allow us to walk in that freedom all the days of our life, that you might be glorified and we might know you and love you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.